to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Brianna is here with me. Don't usually see you on Mondays. Nice to have you with us. It's a more pleasant start to the week than I usually have, Robbie. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. Well, let's get right into it. <laughs> well, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby claimed that the Seymour Hersh story alleging the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipeline is not true. Let's take a listen. The administration has been clear in its denials that there was any U.S. involvement in the Nord Stream pipelines. Seymour Hersh has this long piece out saying he's citing a single anonymous source who talks about what was going on and what he led to, uh, what he claims led to us being involved in that. He says prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine back in December, a working group was put together, and he says this. Um, what became clear to the participants, according to the source with direct knowledge of the process, is that Sullivan, meaning Jake Sullivan, intended for the group to come up with a plan for the destruction of the two Nord Stream pipelines and that he was delivering on the desires of the president. Hirsch points back to the president saying this in February of last year with the German chancellor. There will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. We will... Uh... I promise you we'll be able to do it. Can you say unequivocally the U.S., no U.S. proxy, no one connected to the U.S. had anything to do? I mean, is the Seymour Hersh complete fabrication, that article? It's a completely false story. There is no truth to it, Shannon, not a shred of it. It is not true. The United States and no proxies from the United States had anything to do with that, nothing. If the U.S. were to undertake some mission like that, would the administration have an obligation to inform Congress in we, advance? We, we did not take... Uh, any such operation, Shannon. And obviously, we keep Congress informed appropriately of, of things, both classified and unclassified. But I can tell you now, regardless of the notification process, there was no U.S. involvement in this. None. Zero. It's okay. completely false. So, look, that's an, that is an unequivocal denial I of disagree. involvement. I disagree. It's an unequivocal denial of the involvement, but you, he completely sidestepped her second question. She asked, if, you, if the U.S. were involved in an operation like this, would there be an obligation to disclose it to Congress? And he said, well, there wasn't a, an operation like but this. But then I, th I think he said there was an operation, and then, yes, I, that, I took his answer to be yes. I did not hear— He said hear... we inform Congress ab no, about— No, he said we inform Congress about stuff. <laughs> but he did not say that we would have had an obligation to let Congress know if the U.S. were involved in an operation like this. And that's important, because some of the details in Seymour Hersh's report were about how the team of divers that was selected to implement this mission were specifically selected because they were from a group that did, that evaded some of the notification requirements mm -hmm. that might have existed if certain other um, Navy uh, uh, divers were involved right, in the That was in the substack. Uh that Ian Bremmer piece I, I referenced said that that dis disagreed with that analysis and said even the team that he, that Cyhurst claimed was used would require congressional notification. And he just said they would do congressional notification for things both classified and not classified. So now, I'm not, he could be lying. That could just be a flat out lie. I think it's, but it's a pretty, I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty bald faced lie if it is. Well, Which but, maybe it is, but, the, but... The, that second question, which again I do not believe he answered, is core to this because it completely undermines the first question. If if there is no accountability mechanism and if there is no obligation for there to be any reporting to Congress about operations like this, then he is frankly allowed to lie in answering the first question, which is, did this even? I don't happen? think under any circumstances he's allowed to lie to the press about what happened. He oh, has to decline to comment about it. I mean, look, you can, maybe he's lying, and, and again, everyone, if this turns out to be the case, and we should investigate it, we have to get to the bottom of 
who did this. If it's our government, everyone involved in this lie should be should be held criminally liable for an unconstitutional, flagrant abuse of government power without any oversight, without an, an act of war against an ally, without consultation, without informing Congress. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to get to the bottom of whether it happened or not. Well, to the question of how to get to the bottom of it, um, one interesting that, thing that happened last week was that the same activist who we've covered um, going up to confronting AOC, Jamal Bowman, a number of progressives over specifically the issue of the war in Ukraine, ended up confronting uh, New York Congress member Richie Torres last week and basically asked him point blank if he were willing to have any kind of congressional investigation into the Cy Hirsch story. Uh, let's take a look. Cy Hirsch just released the fact that the United States blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You weren't briefed on that. Why not? Are you going to put a congressional probe into that? Yes or no? Because this ain't no ordinary journalist. You know that. Oh, so, I want to hear what he has to say. Nord Stream, Nord Stream is a pipeline that transfers oil from Europe, particularly Germany. I'm sorry, from Russia to Germany. So we don't have the authority to investigate pipelines. All right, come on. Now that. So you know that Victoria Nuland herself says she's happy that it's a pile of metal underwater. Do you share her sentiment? Here's what we know. The Europeans are conducting an investigation. They investigated And it is true. Why did Joe Biden say that we are going to get rid of the Nord Stream pipeline? And when asked, but wait a minute, that's run by Gazprom in Germany. How are you going to do it? He said, we'll be able to do it. You have definitive evidence. Yeah, we do. It's called Cy Hirsch. All right, so that's as clear a question as you can get. Frankly, it wasn't about I'm blaming you for anything. It was just saying you're a Congress member. Are you going to investigate this? Are you going to launch a probe to investigate it? Richie Torres' answer is, well, Europeans have investigated it. Well, they did investigate it, and they found no evidence that it was Russia, which was the story that was first floated in the media for who was responsible. And everyone seems to have kind of thrown their hands up in the air and said, well, who could know? <laughs> Who can know who did this? And so obviously what that um, protester, uh, Jose Vega, was asking was whether or not we, as the United States, should investigate our own involvement, not what happened on the other side of the world per se, but what we actually might have firsthand knowledge of because we potentially did do it. And it seemed not only like Richie Torres was unwilling to commit to that, but maybe like he wasn't per per potentially knowledgeable about what had been going on in this to begin with. And it would be the easiest thing in the world to say, yes, we should investigate that. Yes. Because we should. Yes. <laughs> we should investigate whether the U.S. was involved, given exactly the comments that Biden and Victoria Nuland made that are mysterious and somewhat sinister about what was going to happen. G again, given that and given the reporting and given the U.S.'s history of doing exactly things like this, it is absolutely a matter for investigation. And the apparent fact that no one was like this wasn't a, a covert operation that went through the you know normal con uh, Congress being informed, et cetera. So, so it's a major scandal if we did this, and that's an absolutely uh, appropriate thing for Congress to investigate. Remember when Congress and the and the executive branch had an adversarial relationship? That when Congress had some. 
uh, I'm talking the distant past now, like like at our founding, when there was some understanding that Congress would be in charge and the executive branch would merely carry out the policies enacted by Congress. We are so far from that. Now they're they're obedient lapdogs, unless yeah. it's unless they're controlled by the opposite party. And even more terrifying, it does seem like Richie Torres, who's been spending a lot of time recently. Um, dunking on the George Santos story hasn't necessarily carved out enough time in his day to really be mm -hmm. briefed on what this is. The Maybe if George Santos claimed he blew up the Nord Street <laughs> pipeline, Richie Torres would be interested in investigating it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's probably true. And look, here, here's, here's the last thing. Republicans, now that they have control of the House, have said that they have intentions of investigating them any number of things. 100 laptop-related, we had the Twitter files hearings. I think that this could be an area, given that there is this anti-war energy mm -hmm. in the party, to actually conduct a, an investigation that I think would ignore enormously to the benefit of the American people and start to, um, frankly, get some real yeah. audits from I like the, left. the I like the statement um, Senator Mike Lee made about this, that these are troubling accusations, cannot be dismissed out of hand. You, you, in an ideal world, they should be able to be dismissed out of hand because the U.S. should never be involved in something like this. But you can't dismiss them out of, the hand, uh, out of hand, and they need to be looked at much further. Yeah, well, we should watch a little bit more of this confrontation uh, with Richie Torres. Let's take a look. And then produce the evidence. Oh, he already, you already produced the evidence. Read the article. Listen, this is this is Hirsch. This is the My Lai Massacre. Okay, this is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He is not going to publish something he can't prove. So unless you're naive enough and you don't know that, I'm here to inform you. I'm at least asking for congressional inquiry into whether or not it's true, because his credibility alone should. Prompt that, don't you think? We know the United States did this. It seems like you know the answer to the question. Well, what are you going to do? I'm your constituent. I'm your constituent. I want you to actually do something about it. Now, of course, journalists make mistakes. It's not true that because this article was written. It is, in fact, true that the United States did this. However, I take his point that I do think that the, the detail of it, the credibility of the journalist, for me, does provoke the necessity of some kind of investigation. And I found um, Richie Torres' response there lacking. Yes, the combination of the article by this very well-regarded journalist who's done terrific investigative work and the statements by Biden and his people on that suggesting something we would do something about Nord Stream, to me, that is a absolute basis to have an inquiry. Again, it's not the final word on the subject. As I've said, I well, I I respect Cy Hirsch and the work he's done. I I cannot. It's not dispositive for me a, right. an article with a single anonymous source. Right, um, but. We should certainly look at it more. Yeah, and it's, it's worth noting, Richie Torres clipped this moment into a response on Twitter saying, my town hall was hijacked by pro-Putin propagandists who blame the U.S. rather than Vladimir Putin for Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine. It's tragic to see useful idiots whitewashing Putin's war crimes. I stand with the Ukrainian people and their fight for freedom. <laughs> like, you can't... <laughs> Even if it doesn't, it, like that's a that's a shoot the messenger kind of uh, say say you don't agree with the politics sure. of the messenger whatever the the inquiry the the questions he was asking are totally valid and ones that everyone no matter how pro Ukrainian you are how much you want to continue the war no matter what your politics are you should care if the government is if your government is lying to you yep. and we know they've done it before yep yeah. yeah. 
Well, we did reach out to Snyhurst for comment, and we're hoping to have him on the show very soon, so stay tuned for that. And coming up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar. What's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, so recently the mainstream media finally started paying some attention to the Twitter files. That's after completely ignoring, for weeks, the revelations that multiple arms of the federal government, the FBI, federal health officials, the White House, and on and on, pushed Twitter to censor the speech of everyday Americans on subjects like COVID, the 2020 election, Russia, and on and on and on. These revelations were brought to us by independent journalists Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and others, and it was done with the cooperation of Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk. Massive government collusion to silence Americans? That's a big story, isn't it? Well, not for the mainstream media, for some reason. Now, that was until evidence emerged recently that Donald Trump had also pushed Twitter to censor content. Finally, this story had an angle that mainstream media can get behind. Orange man, bad. Here's a refresher. Earlier, you testified about a 2019 tweet um, that was about President Trump. And I think it was from uh, Ms. Teagan. What was the tweet about? Would you like me to give the direct quote? Yeah. Um, please excuse my language. This is a direct quote. But Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a OK. Free speech. And what happened after Ms. Teigen posted her tweet? What did the White House do? What did the Trump White House do? From my understanding, the White House reached out to ask that this tweet be removed. It was my team's uh, job. Uh, this fell underneath the policy for abusive behaviors, and we evaluated underneath our insults policy. At that time, up to three insults were allowed, and so it was our job to determine how many insults were included so the, within that phrase. So the Trump White House reached out, not an agency, but the White House reached out and requested that you remove the, the tweet. From my understanding, yes. Okay. Yes, according to reports, Trump pressed Twitter to do something about celebrity Chrissy Teigen calling him a creative bad name. Unlike previous revelations that government forces were pressing Twitter to censor Americans, which did not merit so much as a mention from most national newspapers, magazines, and cable news shows, the Trump censorship story was covered exhaustively. BuzzFeed, Vanity Fair, The Cut, MSNBC, and so on and so on. That was just some quick Googling I did this morning over breakfast. Now look, this deserves coverage because Donald Trump trying to get Twitter to censor criticism of him is absolutely wrong. It's worth calling out. But if it's wrong when Trump does it, isn't it wrong when other political figures do it too? That's the question Matt Taibbi is asking in his most recent Twitter files release. And in fact, he has discovered that Senator Angus King, an independent Democrat from Maine, contacted Twitter with a list of 354 sus accounts. What was so suspicious about these accounts? Well, one was excited about Rand Paul. Another was possibly a bot because it was averaging 20 tweets a day. Another was, quote, being followed by my rival Eric Brankey, a Republican political figure in Maine. Another account, quote, mentions immigration a lot. That's some fine detective work there, Senator. Taibbi also reminds his readers that Adam Schiff attempted to persuade Twitter to remove all content having to do with a member of his staff. Taibbi writes, quote, the fact that mainstream outlets ignored the shift story but howled about Tegan shows what they're about. 
Responses like this are designed to keep blue-leaning audiences especially focused on moronic partisan spats, obscuring bigger-picture narratives. The real story emerging in the Twitter files is about a ballooning federal censorship bureaucracy that's not aimed at either the left or the right per se, but at the whole population of outsiders who are being systematically defined as threats. That's the problem, and you should care about it, even if it only has a little bit to do with Donald Trump. So I, I think that's fair, but the thing that I've been pushing for throughout is that obviously the left liberal media wants to focus on Trump stories. So why is it that the Twitter files has gone out of its way, not to do what Matt Taibbi did just there, which is to say this is a top-down issue, this is about insiders and powerful politicians and the government attacking the people. But instead, quite explicitly, and I believe the first Twitter files, I talked about this in my radar last week or the week before, in that first Twitter files thread, Matt Taibbi framed it as something that disproportionately is affecting the right. Now, my view and what I laid out in that radar was that I did not think at that time, and certainly now, there's enough evidence that has been disclosed to the public to really prove that case. And that's not necessarily Matt Taibbi or any of these journalists' fault. It's the nature of how these disclosures have been made so that we can't see what the whole body of discourse has been. So when something like the, the Chrissy Teigen exchange comes out, it really undermines the story that's been told up until this point, which is that this is all about the right attacking the left. Now, if Matt Taibbi reframes this as this is about people in power attacking average American citizens, including people like Chrissy Teigen, then frankly, I think that the Twitter files would have had more traction in mainstream even before this. And then the Chrissy Teigen story wouldn't be used as a gotcha back to Matt Taibbi. It would be included as part of all of the useful reporting that they have been doing. And I think they really kind of shot themselves in the foot by coming out, I think, a little too prematurely aggressive with the framing that the Twitter files is about how there is a right, a left, a liberal attack on the right. I don't think I agree that that was like a framing they chose or the way it comes. I think that people tried to slot it into that because it's not. And also, even if the framing is that the right has been targeted. I mean, what constitutes the right is an ever-evolving question. Like, you know, most criticism of, again, of the, of, the, uh, of the Ukrainian effort, right, is now getting coded as right, even though it has very much in common with the left, and there are a lot of people who feel that way. The, you know, COVID dissent is right-coded. Um, all of that's, uh, you know, skepticism of Russiagate, again, right-coded, even though there's nothing Republican or conservative about it necessarily. But more importantly, the aggressors, the censors and the silencers, I don't think that's getting a—it's Democrats to—because it's the, it's, the, it's the FBI. What is the political party of the FBI? I mean, I, it, in some ways, it's cable no, news, I, MSNBC, I, it's that CNN. That is true. Yeah. And that is why I have been interested in and have never flinched in my articulation of the value of the Twitter files reporting. But this is from, uh, the, I believe, it was the first Twitter files thread on uh, December 2nd, Matt Taibbi, he says, the system wasn't balanced. It was based on contacts because Twitter was and is overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation. There were more channels, more ways to complain open to the left, well, Democrats, than the right. You know, he th this was not an accidental framing that happened separate and apart from Matt Taibbi. Now, Matt Taibbi also, of course, did say there was there was, there was stuff coming from the, the Trump White House as well. And he rearticulated that when the Chrissy Teigen stuff came out. He said, well, I've always said there was stuff from Trump. But what some people pointed out, and I think it's fair, is that we didn't get the detail 
with respect to what Trump, the, the kinds of censorship Trump was trying to wield on his behalf, so, so Tybee, than we did other folks. So Tybee did say in this, or responding, I saw more tweets from himself, he said he's looked for some of the Trump stuff, like the Chrissy Teigen thing, and it's just not, it's not come out of the, he says he believes it, he said he has sources at, who have described these kinds of requests being made, he hasn't been able to find them. He believes they're being made, and that's what the situation is with respect to some of the Trump stuff. So, uh, so that's and again, what he says. I'm sorry, this is what I said on my radar last week. He also tweeted, this is around the time of all the Chrissy Teigen stuff coming out, that he said, I didn't see it, in response to someone who said, why didn't you report mm -hmm. on this? He said, I didn't see it, I don't have it. However, I was, however, told by sources there had been requests from the Trump White House, which I reported even though I didn't have the actual text. And what that says to me, that Matt Taibbi knew that there was something about Trump making these requests, and either didn't follow up to know more detail or tried to follow up and that information was withheld from him by Twitter. Either one of those things is a story. One, because it shows that Twitter is feeding him selective information. Alternatively, that he is claiming that he just couldn't find files when he is admitting here in this tweet that he knew of this information but and, and reported the evidence of the information, but didn't actually get the information so that he could report on it as substantively as he has other kinds of documents. And that's, that's a problem. That's going to be a problem for people. Because just flagging, hey, I heard there was some stuff about Trump without going into the same detail you've told about the other but stuff. He, he looked for it. He just didn't, he didn't find it. It didn't get he produced. He says, I didn't see it. I don't have it. I was, however, told by sources there had been requests from the Trump White House. So if you know there have been re requests from the Trump White House, mm -hmm. and you say, well, I just haven't seen anything from the Trump White House, to me, that is a journalistic gap where you're—there is an—I'm not saying it's intentional, but there is a tacit misrepresentation of what evidence exists, even while you know that there is evidence that is not being unpacked in the public sphere. He's just sphere. describing the situation. He said he was told that evidence exists. He tried to find it and could not obtain it. Why not? So he's just telling that, you But that's exists. the story, Robbie. That, that is the story. The story is he cannot say this information didn't exist. It was more on the left. When he knows there's a cache of documents out there, there's a cache of evidence out there that he either has not investigated and tried to get to or was not able to get to, why? Why? That is a huge question. And if the answer is he could not access that information because Twitter, Elon Musk, whomever is in charge of these disclosures, did not want him to get it, Arguably, the implication is because that's a narrative that is not conducive to the, this is a liberal against the right framing that has been here from the beginning of the Twitter files, then that's a real problem. That's a real red flag. And I don't think it, it does a discredit, I think, to, again, the good and useful reporting that's coming out of the Twitter I, files. Re I really don't think the framing is liberal versus the right. It's, it's, it's deep state. An apparatus that has harmed the left over and over again. <laughs> do I have to read this this tweet from December second again? Robbie? I mean, what do you make of this? What do you make of him saying? How can you how can you argue that this isn't a narrative being promoted, not just abstractly by people who are using the Twitter files, but by people who are reporting on the Twitter fi files as well? When in the very first thread we have Taibbi saying the system wasn't balanced; it was based on contacts because Twitter was and is overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation. There were more channels. More ways to complain open to the left, well, Democrats than the right. And that's not the only moment in the Twitter files threads that he makes the case. He's, we've, I, he's running I, these searches and they're not coming, he, he's not getting the documents that support right. as much of the. But he had sources tell him there were documents that he was not able to access. And we now know at least what some of those documents said because the Chrissy Teigen stuff came out. So that's either, I'm sorry, 
negligent journalism, a lack of inquisitiveness, something that he should have followed up on, because he was aware. It wasn't like, oh, I had no idea. I looked, and there was no, no reason to believe there was stuff that I wasn't getting. From the beginning, some of us have been saying, you don't know if you're getting the full picture. So making these kinds of claims is a little reckless. And now, when we did get a little bit of a bigger part of the picture, it's, it's undermining his case in a way that, again, mm -hmm. I don't want to happen. I think this is important reporting. But if you get caught flat-footed like this, there are people gonna, that are going to use it as a gotcha. And one last thing I'll say, when you're a lawyer and you know you have an un, an, an, an un, um, uh, a, a, a fact that is unflattering to your case, you do not hide it. You cannot. You have to disclose documents. You cannot bury it. What you do is you get the fact out first so that you can frame it in the way that you want to frame it before your opposing counsel gets to it. And Taibbi could have done that with some of these Trump claims, some of the, you know, and, and, and presented a more balanced picture that bolstered his credibility. And I'm not saying he, and again, he didn't, he didn't hide this stuff. I'm not claiming that at all. But the fact that there wasn't a more questions asked when he apparently knew per his own tweet that there were these other there was this, there were these Trump requests that didn't get reported on and continued to argue that this was predominantly, that there was no well, look, evidence would, that the right was doing this I in the way that the left was. I would love to see him do that. I would also, I, I'm, I'll patiently wait for BuzzFeed to have an article about Adam Schiff and Angus King. The, the criticism to... of BuzzFeed and all that is completely legitimate. They, they are flagrantly partisan in their coverage. That's obviously true. But I, I, I also do think that there is some responsibility here on the, ha on, the, on, the, on the part of the Twitter files journalists to insulate themselves against those kind of claims by being more transparent than they have been and also not leaning in so hard into the framing that they know the, 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 how weighted, how the direction in which the bias is going so conclusively. All right, well, we gotta leave it there. We'll have more Rising right after this. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg said yesterday that he would call on major railroads to improve safety after the train derailment that occurred in East Palestine, Ohio, on February 3rd, a train operated by Norfolk Southern. In a letter to Norfolk Southern, Chief Executive Alan Shaw, Buttigieg said he would also urge Congress to raise the cap on fines against railroads for violating safety regulations, quote, to ensure their deterrent effect is commensurate with the economic proportions of today's large railroad companies. That's according to Reuters. Norfolk Southern said Sunday it received a copy of the letter from the secretary and are reviewing. Buttigieg also had this to say. While this uh, horrible situation has gotten a particularly high amount of attention, there are roughly 1,000 cases a year of a train derailing. Interesting comeback there. You know, you might think this one's really bad, but guess what? We're asleep at the wheel. A number of horrible emergencies yeah. that happen every year. You know, it, it, which it, seems to be the case. This is not actually out of care. It's, it's being covered more, but there there are this many crashes absolutely. every year. And, and frankly, I think, but for the cinematically large black plume of smoke that mm -hmm. was suspended over the event, the fact that the that plume of smoke mirrored what just happened in a major motion picture just filmed in that before. area <laughs> filmed in the exact same place with extras from that town we might not have been paying mm -hmm. attention to this story at all and in fact it took 
a number, over a week for the media to start paying attention to it, largely because of the urging of some independent journalists like the folks over at The Lever, David Sirota, et cetera, who've been putting a lot of pressure on the, the um, on Pete Buttigieg and on the, on the White House, despite there being a lot of pushback. Um, so the narrative that we've gotten this entire time is, well, what do you expect Pete to do? This is, you know, a lot of uh, Biden... Um, friendly or affiliated people have been saying that there is a disproportionate criticism that's happening here, that this isn't really something in their purview and that they didn't have any control. But suddenly, after some weeks of pressure, they've started to change some rules. So now there is going to be this uh, lifting of a maximum fine. Are you curious, Robbie, what the maximum fine up until this point has been for railroad curious. companies? A mere $200,025 mm -hmm. uh, cap. So that's a, a fine, that's a fine for breaking a... Regulation. I, I'd also be curious to know what I've been looking and, and have not been able to find exactly what the the liability shield might be. I assume they have a maximum yeah. for civil action. Sure. So, but consider this: this is an industry. This is a, the railroad company. North, uh, the uh, the railroad company involved here had a revenue of at least twelve point seven billion dollars last year, and we're expecting a fine of a little over two hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars to have an effect on their behavior as they transport highly hazardous materials across the country. Mm -hmm. And I have a follow-up question. They are raising the cap. Are they going to get rid of the cap? Why does there exist? If you are engaging in behavior that could potentially cause enough widespread destruction, that it costs enough to the public, that it might put you out of business, is that a case for you not being able to do that at all. Well, and, Why can't the markets decide, and on, frankly, whether or not sure. this is an Sure. No, I agree with that. And on the liability front, um, so there's been some debate over whether FEMA should become involved. Mm. And actually, one of the arguments, um, according to—I mean, you know, make of this what you will—but uh, Republican officials who have been involved in this, Senator J.D. Vance, Republican Governor Mike DeWine, ha have sounded um, concerned about if FEMA comes in, then a, they're, they're worried that actually shields the liability of the railroad, mm. because then this becomes a federal issue, where then the federal government is really responsible for cleanup and fixing things, when it should be the railroad is the one who should pay. So yeah, they that's some interesting... Yeah, they absolutely should. Now, another thing, you know, in the context of the administration can't do anything, our hands are tied. David Sirota over the lever pointed out that despite claims that they are constrained and have no power to do something after two weeks of massive pressure, they've also, uh, the, the Department of Transportation is also developing a notice of proposed rulemaking that will require railroads to provide real-time information on the contents of tank cars to authorized emergency response officials responding to or investigating an incident. So part of what happened was there was a lot of confusion about what was even in the cars and how to handle the, what they, they call them bomb trains because they have so much potentially ex explosive reactive material in them that it's like a bomb on track. So when something like this happens, knowing quickly what is on the cars and how best to handle them is essential for emergency operators. And now we're having this conversation about whether or not this controlled release was in fact the best way to handle this situation and whether or not having more transparency and more information would have helped here. Mm. Well, Tulsi Gabbard has weighed in on the situation. She tweeted, no surprise, Norfolk Southern and Biden administration don't care about the catastrophe in Ohio. If they did, they'd have taken preventative action despite windfall profits for Norfolk Southern and $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill for Buttigieg. They have done nothing to protect our communities with over 1,000 derailments in one year. Exactly the point you were just making. And she said this on Fox News. 
ask the Biden administration, hey, you knew, Pete Buttigieg said, oh, well, there's a thousand trains that derail every year. If you know that, what are you doing about it? What could you have done to potentially prevent this absolute catastrophe, putting the lives of these families, their loved ones, their kids, their, their pets, their animals uh, at risk here? Uh, and that's really the question that we need to ask of those who are responsible. They're so arrogant. They think that they're special. They're above the law. They're above reproach. They're above accountability. They clearly don't care about us. They think they can get away with anything. We have to demand more. We have to demand this accountability. We have to demand that those who are in these positions are actually doing their job to take care of the American people. And a new piece in The Federalist asks, why is Pete Buttigieg allowed to keep failing upward? Uh, I mean, this is a valid question. Obviously, it's not the main thrust of the story, but is this going to derail <laughs> the uh, uh, presidential aspirations of Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, I mean, when he was first appointed, there was uh, reporting that he would have preferred another position. I think he wanted an ambassador position, um, and that this this was a this kind requires of a, actual work. Well, <laughs> and look, maybe, not to not to you know uh, smear our hardworking ambassadors, but, 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 but also maybe he had some self-awareness that he wasn't actually no. particularly prepared for this job. I mean, even when he was running for president, there were accusations that he wasn't prepared for that because he had been the mayor of a very small town. Um, yeah. In a way that didn't really set him up for, for running an entire country, much less the Department of, of, of Transportation. Um, but the thinking was he and a number of other candidates in the 2020 race stepped out um, and cleared the path for Biden. There was clearly not enough votes for a divided, uh, moderate lane, unless they all coalesced around one candidate to you know defeat the progressive uh, Bernie Sanders. And so they needed to all be rewarded for having taken the DP Buttigieg being the strongest of those candidates. He merited a special reward. So there would be, there's a lot of irony in the idea that him being given this gift of a cabinet position is ultimately what leads to his political downfall. However, given the way the world works, I wouldn't be surprised if People continue to push us under the rug. His um, commsswoman, Liz Smith, has been pushing back a great deal against some of the reporting that's been coming out of the lever and the accusations that Buttigieg and the Biden administration more generally should have known, um, should have been paying more attention. If there were if there were a thousand train derailments over the last year, why hasn't there been a conversation before this about reversing the break rules uh, um, under Trump that got rid of or, or pre prevented implementation of the higher quality breaks that would allow the train to stop uh, more precisely on a dime instead of jackknifing and causing derailments like the ones that we're talking about now. I mean, you can't have it both ways. Apparently, that's not a very important agenda item. And when you're a World Economic Forum young fellow, uh, <laughs> he was a young global leader who was part of that. He worked for McKinsey. Uh, yep. We're not quite sure what he was doing there. There's well, we'll know a little bit about the, the bread-fixing scandal. Remember, one of, one of the New York Times' most glowing moments, in my view, over the last few years were the candidate interviews that they did back in 2020. And um, one of the journalists there asked Pete Buttigieg a series of pretty pointed questions about uh, McKinsey and Pete Buttigieg's involvement in a, in a, bre a bread price fixing scandal, I believe, in Canada. And the look on his face is priceless. I strongly recommend those who haven't watched that video <laughs> to go back and watch it. But look, I, I, there's, if, if it weren't for the fact that he was so doggedly pursuing power and political clout, seemingly from the time he was 
a very young man straight out of college, I might have some sympathy for him being put in this position where that was kind of like designed to fail. But of course, he he courted this. And frankly, my sympathies cannot be divided. I have there's no reserve of sympathy when there's so much tragedy that's befalling the people of, of this community in East Palestine and all of the untold trail disasters across the country. Mm. Right, and, and several uh, things going wrong with several different kinds of transportation. I, I was already dissatisfied him, with him given uh, the uh, tremendous breakdown we had in uh, in air travel. Yes, even the before Southwest this. debacle. And again, by the way, that's a very similar story where Southwest, instead of using its profits to invest in its own booking mechanisms and updating its equipment from like the 1970s or 80s, instead use that money to pay shareholders and do stock buybacks. And who pays the cost? The consumer over and over again. And we are given paltry crumbs to try to make up for the fact that we miss our holidays, miss our families, or maybe are never re reunited with them at all. We give, them a massive, we, are, we give the industry a massive bailout every time there's a slightest things going wrong? And do they use that money to make things right? No. A hundred percent. So I'm, I'm so excited about the pressure that's coming from some parts of the media um, on the Biden administration and on Buttigieg. I'm so heartened to see that Fox News and Tulsi Gabbard and the like are really keeping up the pressure here. What I hope, though, is that that's converted into a constructive criticism of some of the systemic pressures here, because it's not just Pete Buttigieg, and it's not just a Democrat issue. These are rules that came into place under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration are being carried forward by the I'm sorry, the Trump administration, and the Obama administration are being carried forward by the Biden administration. And until we stop, stop party punching and start actually engaging with why the, there are these regulatory failures, we're going to have another thousand derailments in the coming year. If your train explodes, you have to pay for the cost and you have to make things right with the people it's affected. I yeah. think everyone can agree on that. We will have more rising in just a minute. Please stay tuned. Questions remain about the origins and the nature of the unidentified objects shot out of the sky last week. U.S. officials have confirmed that at least two belong to China, but an Aviation Week report published on Thursday maintains the balloon that's MIA could in fact belong to a hobby club called the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. Sounds very threatening. According to Aviation Week, the hobby club reported that the last known position of the party-style balloon was at 40,000 feet off the west coast of Alaska on February 10th. The Chinese balloon saga took center stage in the first meeting between Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and China's top diplomat since the incident, which the China rep representative called, quote, nearly hysterical. Here to discuss Washington's reaction to the unidentified flying objects is Jake Werner, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me on. All right. Now, we have been talking about this in the disproportionate, arguably, re reaction to it. The fact that missiles that are valued an incredible sum are used to shoot what might ultimately just be kind of hobbyist projects out of the sky. What do you make of both the level of reaction and the, uh, from the uh, state and also the level of reaction from the media? I think you know. I think I think the Biden administration has been relatively responsible uh, in the way that it responded to this. Although shooting down, uh, you know, fifty-dollar hobbyist balloons with uh, with several hundred thousand-dollar missiles maybe was an overreaction. Um, but the the larger political context for this has been deeply irresponsible. 
Um, and it has uh, probably created the environment in which the Biden administration felt like it had to overreact in the way that it did. Um, uh, but more importantly, it sort of signals where we're at in the U.S.-China relationship, that there is are essentially no voices in Washington arguing for a responsible relationship with China. And that kind of imbalance in the, the way that Washington is regarding China is, is really dangerous. The media, I think, they kind of pick up the story and ran with it. It's sensationalist. It's kind of funny. It's kind of threatening at the same time. It's it's kind of like media gold. Um, I you know I I wish that the that the media would focus on things that actually are uh, dangerous to the American people or that are real opportunities for the American people. Um, but that's not always the logic on which the media operate. Um, and I and I think the media kind of take their signals from from what's going on uh, in Congress and in the political debate in Washington. Um, so that's probably the place that we need to look to try to, to try to change things and put things on a better track. Well, Secretary Blinken also hit China's diplomat on his country's involvement in the war between Russia and Ukraine, namely how it might supply Russia with weapons. While Blinken rebuked any help Beijing extends to the Kremlin, China fiercely denied such accusations. A spokesperson shot back, saying, quote, we do not accept the United States finger-pointing on China-Russia relations, let alone coercion and pressure. Despite China's denial, trade data shows the Kremlin is using Chinese jet drones in its war with Ukraine. According to The Wall Street Journal, Russia is putting some of these commercial drones to use on the battlefield to target Ukrainian forces, a major concern for the Pentagon. Now, Jake, you wrote in a, an article uh, earlier this month that you wanted, you believe there should be a responsible relationship with uh, China. I think that you also just made reference to that a little while ago. What does that mean, and why is it important as there continues to be these kinds of uh, escalations between the two countries, either real or imagined? Yeah. Well, the I, the the Biden administration has been pursuing a policy that is overwhelmingly uh, about what it says is competition with China. Um, the 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 uh, many of the measures that the administration has been pursuing or that Congress is pushing to enact into law, um, many of them are uh, prudent measures to take in in a context of uh, a growing power of China. Uh, we don't really know how China will use that power. It's 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 quite uh, responsible, I think, to uh, to hedge against bad possibilities there. The thing that is really deeply irresponsible is to make that the only way in which we're, we're interacting with China, right? So this imbalance between a deterrent posture or a balancing posture on the one hand and the inability to show China that there is a world in which the United States wants China to exist, uh, that imbalance is, uh, is sending the signal to China not that the United States is being prudent, but that the United States is preparing or is already containing China, trying to keep it down, try, trying to exclude it from what the Chinese leadership considers uh, China's rightful place in the global system. Um, that is leading to China, China's uh, responses to these kinds of measures in ways that are that are uh, generally unconstructive. Uh, that in turn sends the signal to uh, American leaders that China is irresponsible. So we get a kind of escalating dy dynamic where the imbalance in the relationship is getting worse and worse as each side becomes more and more convinced that the other is going to its, be its enemy and therefore has to prepare for that. The danger here is that we end up, um, uh, the, the worst danger is we end up in a war. That's, that's a very real possibility given how explosive the issue of Taiwan is. Um, but even if uh, we manage to avert that and, and the route, road that we're on right now, uh, it, it's not looking great. 
Um, but even if we manage, manage to, to avert the worst consequences of this, uh, nonetheless, if we get into a situation where the U.S. and China are facing each other in a, in a relationship of permanent hostility, then each one is going to be undermining and sabotaging what the other wants to accomplish. And generally speaking, there are a lot of interests that are shared between the two countries that are just going to get thrown out the window as the two sides prepare for conflict. And how concerned should the U.S. be, or what even should U.S. policy response be to, uh, you know, this allegation of uh, Russia and China working closely together, China supplying Russia with weapons? I think that I, again, I think that the problem here is not the steps that the Biden administration uh, is taking, uh, signaling to China that this would be unacceptable. That's fine. Signaling that there are going to be consequences. That's fine. Um, if, if uh, uh, as long as that's done in, in a very clear way about where U.S. red lines are and what the consequences would be for crossing them, um, that's fine. But in again, in the context of a deeply imbalanced approach to China, in which the only thing that the administration can say to China is that we don't like this that you're doing, we don't like that that you're doing, um, China is not going to be responsive to that kind of a message, number one. And number two, uh, the, the deepening of this kind of uh, uh, antagonism between the two sides is extremely, extremely dangerous. It pushes us closer and closer to a situation where the two countries really orient their entire foreign policy, if not their entire societies, around confronting the other one. Jake, I'm really troubled. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the idea of these two countries confronting each other, of there actually being an escalation that could even threaten or hint at war with a country as resourced and as populous as China. We talk about this in the context of Ukraine, uh, Russia, that whatever, you know, resolution you want, obviously, I think most people are looking for a peaceful resolution, the idea that Ukraine is going to overpower Russia by brute military force is naive at the same time that I imagine a conflict between the United States and China, I'm not really placing bets on that one. And I'm similarly coming to it from a position of avoidance at all cost. And I'm concerned that the way we're talking about this doesn't seem to reflect that orientation. Do do you know what I'm saying? You know, do do you get the feeling that people are engaging with this issue with a full understanding of what it would mean for the world, for there to be a, an open hostilities between countries like the United States and China? No, not at all. It's all very, it's all very abstract. It's like moving around pieces on a chessboard. Um, uh, the reality is that we don't know what would happen. Uh, at a minimum, any any real conflict between the U.S. and China, military conflict, would involve the death of thousands of people on both sides. Um, uh, some of the war games that have been done, uh, sort of trying to project what might happen involve the sinking of numerous aircraft carriers, American aircraft carriers, and there are thousands of people on each aircraft carrier. So you can imagine, even in a, if we were very lucky and came out of this and, and the, the war remained relatively limited, we're still talking about the death of thousands of people, a permanent, a permanent state of hostility between the two countries. And if the conflict took place over Taiwan, then it would absolutely devastate uh, the, this wonderful uh, country of Taiwan. Um, so the the only for those who uh, want to safeguard Taiwan, for those who are concerned about Chinese actions, the only way to solve any of this stuff is to make sure that we don't get into that kind of a conflict. Uh, instead, people are rushing rushing into like how do we how do we beat China if we're in a war with China? Um, if if that's the discussion, we've already lost. We've already not just the United States, not just Taiwan, not just China, but the entire world. Because even beyond the immediate consequences, 
it, it would be a complete catastrophe for the global economy and it would destroy the lives of literally millions of people. We, we've we've seen like a very a sort of shadow version of that with the Russia-Ukraine version. It, it would be 10 times, 100 times worse if the U.S. and China were fighting each other. Well, Fox News did reach out to Nib for comment, and NORAD told Fox News Digital that the FBI has spoken with the Hobby Club and expects the National Security Council to have more on potentially identifying the objects. Uh, we'll follow any updates here. Jake Warner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. CNN has denied a report that host Don Lemon has been benched over the sexist comments that he made previously, though he will not be hosting this Monday morning as a direct result of what he had to say about Nikki Haley's age and whether she's in her prime. That's according to Daily Beast. Mediaite reports that CNN is denying that report. The Daily Beast Lachlan Cartwright writes that CNN changed its Monday lineup to proceed without Lemon while conversations about his future are ongoing. Mm, according to CNN Insider, Don Lemon is taking a holiday and will return on air depending on where his head is at. Lemon wrote last week, the reference I made to a woman's prime this morning was inartful and irrelevant as colleagues and loved ones have pointed out, and I regret it. A woman's age doesn't define her either personally or professionally. I have countless women in my life who prove that every day. And as a reminder, here's part of that clip. This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that, I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime, sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s, and maybe 40s. What do you talk? Wait. I, that's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll say, if you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. Oh, I got it in another I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that, well, you know, politicians aren't in their prime. You need to need qualify. To Are you talking about prime for, like, child caring? Or are you talking about prime for being president? Don't shoot the what the facts are. Google it. Everybody at home, when is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime. And they need to be in their prime when they serve. Because she wouldn't be in her prime, according to... Google? You know, Google or whatever it is. Look, Google, it just gets better and better. Google it. A woman is in her prime when she's 3.14159. <laughs> that is the exact mathematical age that a woman is fit for the presidency. <laughs> right. I mean, he was going off childbirth, which is... It was, I mean, we, it was so we bashed the, this whole thing last of week. Course. You should watch that. But let's go ahead and do it again, because <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, look, this, this story about, you know, denying that there are these kind of professional consequences at the same time that he's obviously taking a holiday and he's not there today. And mm -hmm. then the rejoinder to the accusation that, you know, there are conversations about his future being that he's, you know, going to come back when we see where his head's at. I mean, it kind of sounded more like an admission than a, a denial, frankly. But there are internal conversations happening about what to do with Don Lemon with good cause, because remember, this is a new shift for him to ha having moved from the mm -hmm. night format to the morning format. Um, we covered his, uh, you know, He's taking it so well. And, and look, there is clear fit issues. Yeah. Um, CNN, a lot of the mainstream uh, media are struggling with how to appeal to an audience that seems to be wanting something different that's fleeing to online shows. And also a large part of the liberal audience is watching Fox News increasingly. And uh, I don't know that Don Lemon is the solution 
He that in, in fact, he shamed Caitlin Collins, one of his uh, his co-hosts, um, who, you know, we don't know if she's in her prime. She's all of, like, 27 or something. I don't know how old she is. Um, but uh, she was doing a great interview with Representative James Comer about uh, how the new Republican House uh, uh, majority is going to look into uh, the, the deep state nefariousness, the Hunter Biden, all that stuff we're curious about. And uh, it was—but it, it was a hard interview. She pushed back on some of it. She's saying, well, we haven't found the there there for Biden's involvement, for President Biden versus Hunter Biden, et cetera. And then after that interview, he—Don Lemon, you know, Poppy Harlow tried to say, thanks, good job, Caitlin Collins, let's go to break now. And Don Lemon, like, no, stop, just stop. Don't don't you dare go to break. We I have to condemn— <laughs> Even having to let you hear what Republicans are saying, it is. I can't believe we're living in a time where we freely interview Republicans. Like she'd done something wrong. And I think you're right to bring up that incident in the context of this incident because I think they both come from an unwillingness to engage with any opinions, much less criticism, but any mm -hmm. anything that's coming from the right as in good faith. So in, in this context, they were having a conversation about whether or not. Joe Biden's age should be a factor uh, as people consider who they want to support, either in a Democratic primary context or, generally speaking, in a general election. Nikki Haley is obviously putting herself out there as someone who is much younger than many of the other people in contention, including Donald mm. Trump and Joe Biden. These are facts. If you can't acknowledge that there might be some legitimacy to a voter being curious whether or not Joe Biden has stamina, curious as to whether or not, the, you know, what the consequences of Kamala Harris having to become president in his stead would be, whether or not she could actually beat the Republican candidate, what that means for the fate of the Democratic Party. If you can't honestly engage yes. with the idea that those are legitimate concerns, you are going to get to a place where you're saying, well, uh, Nikki Haley's no spring chicken either. She's past her prime. Which The, the current average age, and we bring this up a lot, but the average age of the people in, in government now is historically yeah. an anomalously old. And look, and that is an issue, that you're not crazy to wonder whether uh, some of the people in the Senate who are holding hearings on complicated tech and security issues, uh, who are not capable of understanding it, frankly, uh, because of their age, whether that's a good thing. This is not—we <laughs> are, we are being ruled by historical standards by an unusually older crowd of people. I'm not saying that's always inappropriate or that the, the, uh, there should be, like, a cutoff age or something, or but Or that Nikki Haley is particularly technically adept <laughs> or knowledgeable right, about it is Twitter something, it is something to be— to be concerned about. Yeah. Look, there's plenty to criticize Nikki Haley on if he wants to be critical of Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. It is just so odd. No, he's affronted by the idea you would even have to hear what they have to say. Right. That's exactly. not something that's not something that they do there on the Don Lemon morning show, I guess. I or guess. that's what he doesn't want it to be. Yeah. Well, a decade ago, here's what he was saying on CNN. Let's watch. Because black people, if you really want to fix the problem, here's just five things that you should think about doing. Here's number five. And if, if, if this doesn't apply to you, if you're not doing this, then it doesn't apply to you. I'm not talking about you. Here's number five. Pull up your pants. Walking around with your ass and your underwear showing is not okay. In fact, it comes from prison when they take away belts from the prisoner so that they can't make a weapon. And then it evolved into which role a prisoner would have during male-on-male -male prison sex. The one with the really low pants is a submissive one. You get my point? Number four now is the N-word. By promoting the use of that word when it's not germane to the conversation, have you ever considered that you may just be perpetuating the stereotype the master intended, acting like a Now number three, respect where you live. 
Start small by not dropping trash, littering in your own communities. I've lived in several predominantly white neighborhoods in my life. I rarely, if ever, witness people littering. I live in Harlem now. It's an historically black neighborhood. Every single day I see adults and children dropping their trash on the ground when a garbage can is just feet away. Just being honest here. Uh, my favorite part there is the sheer volume of white people sagging their pants and the B-roll of people sagging their pants. Maybe they're just trying to communicate to their prison roommates <laughs> who's going to be involved in what. It's so odd for an openly gay, I mean, I don't know if he was openly gay at the time, but an openly gay host to be somehow like, you know, queer shaming uh, people into pulling up their pants, saying that you, if you do this, then you're I mean, at the it, bottom. It's it, it was re remarkably, um, it, it, it was based by, by uh, Don Lemon standards. They sound like he was auditioning for a, for a gig on Fox or something. Yeah, and to that point, Glenn Greenwald tweeted, the reason Don Lemon said all that is because uh, these points in the Obama years were the popular views in elite circles. As soon as they became prohibited and it became required to say the opposite, Lemon did a 180. This is how the vast majority of people in media function. Do you think that's true? I think that's right. There was a lot of this kind of social conservatism. Respectability politics. Exactly. The, the kind of Bill Cosby line yeah. of uh, attack Obama didn't work would out so well for Bill Cosby. He absolutely would. And I think uh, there were a lot of black people at the time that were frustrated with it, but there was this feeling that you kind of had to limit your critiques of Barack Obama um, and that he had to perform in a certain way to make it in a media environment that was hostile and racist against him. So I think there was a lot, a big step back uh, that a lot of um, black mm -hmm. activist groups, um, social interest groups took because they were running cover, frankly, for Obama, and they maybe are regretting that now. But Don Lemon was is is, a, is an, an elite. He is a conservative elite that's mad after living in many, many white neighborhoods for many, many years. He, you know, declined. He he lowered himself to living in Harlem, where he is very disgusted with a state of people littering. It's also something that he should look into: the fact that there is less trash pickup in poorer neighborhoods. Poor neighborhoods also tending to be predominantly uh, black and brown. Right. I, I, I suspect. The relationship is um, cat not causal because it's just higher income neighborhoods have less trash and than lower income. It's Correct. Not that black people are <laughs> littering more than. Oh, white that's people, that's a woke talk there, Robbie. <laughs> it looks like maybe we should switch places with Don Lemon so that he gets the progressivism on CNN. I would treat Caitlin <laughs> Collins and Poppy Harlow with the respect they deserve. I know because I experience it every day. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for vouching for me. We're rising right after this. A new study has found that immunity acquired from a COVID infection is on par with the protection provided through two doses of an mRNA vaccine. Infection-acquired immunity cut the risk of hospitalization and death from a COVID reinfection by 88% for at least 10 months, the Lancet study found. The immunity generated from an infection was found to be at least as high, if not higher than that, provided by two doses of an mRNA vaccine, the authors wrote. Senior study author Christopher Murray said, this is really good news in the sense that protection against severe disease and death after infection is really quite sustained at 10 months, NBC News writes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an incredible study, especially the, the part about the longevity. Because think of the concern a lot of people had with both the protection from prior infection and protection from the vaccines is, well, how long does this last? Because that's the fundamental question you're having to consider mm -hmm. when thinking about whether or not it's time to boost, whether right. or not you and want does to. does it wane uh, more uh, easily or more rapidly for people who are immunocompromised or the elderly, sure. the people we want you know, to be protected anyway? Yeah, I, I saw a lot of people talking about this online with a certain amount of like 
well-deserved smug satisfaction because mm -hmm. people have been saying for a long time that it seemed likely there would be some good level of protection after an infection. And the Fauci's of the world were, were they, they've admitted it by now, but they really did slow walk that one. Yeah. They, it took a long time to say that, that there was so much downplaying of it, so much dismissing of it. Um, um, that, that was really harmful. There was a well. It doesn't really matter if you, you know, if you've already had it. You still got to get vaccinated, which, which now we know that that it's that that should be considered if you've had it. That should be considered like one or maybe even two shots or yeah. something. And the implications, of course, as we've discussed, for the people who lost their jobs because there were vaccine oh, mandates. Oh, absolutely. How the athletes that shameful. weren't able to travel to the country because there's vaccine mandates. Um, it's, it's incredible. And not to mention the level of, of course, social shaming that existed around the idea that you're going to kill somebody's grandma because you mm -hmm. don't go ahead and get vaccinated. You know, I think that a lot of people really did believe that in good faith. Take that for what mm -hmm. you will, because there was such a, a, a lack of clarity mm -hmm. in the media sphere. I just had a conversation with someone on my podcast actually earlier this month who seemed to uh, just not really know, mm -hmm. not really know what the new science had said. And because I think so many of the voices that were leading on this mm -hmm. were not necessarily voices that were trusted among liberals or even among certain parts of the left, they were acting in ignorance and frankly, behaving in a way that was judgmental, that was ultimately damaging to our understanding of the science and our ability to communicate it across different political camps. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it would have affected the messaging because uh, particularly with the subsequent variants, you know, COVID becoming, extremely infectious, it becoming harder and harder to avoid it entirely, even if you're taking extreme precautions. You know, the messaging could have been like, well, have you had it yet? Okay, if you haven't had it yet and you're in a 65 plus category, look, this you should get the vaccine to decrease your risk of severe disease and death when you then get COVID. If you've already had COVID, great. This is not, you know, do make whatever choice you want, but it's not as pivotal. But if, we, if you know you've not had it, you know, you should plan on, it, it's hard to avoid. You have a high likelihood of getting it and you might benefit, especially if you're in that age category, from vaccination first. But if you've already had, there'll be more trust if, if, the, meta, if the experts were saying, look, the, the key is, do you have any kind of protection yet to COVID? Find out, oh, you do, okay. Well, then it's less of a, this is less of a dire situation then um, yeah. because you have some protection. And that, I think that, I think if you'd leveled with people on that, it could have been really helpful for the, the campaign to actually encourage vaccination in, in, in the at-risk population. Absolutely, and I do hope they continue, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they are, but they continue to do these studies about how long the protective effects of these things last. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, the, when, I, and when I was talking to people like um, uh, Vijay Prasad uh, about, you know, the decision-making around bo the booster shots, which had just come out at the, at the time, and the decision-making that people were going through, I took a lot of what he said to heart. But the question for me was, okay, but at some point we can all acknowledge that this is probably, the protection is gonna taper off, whether it's from a vaccine or from a prior infection. And you can't completely ignore the relevance of boosters as long as that's the case. And are, are we going to be able to tell when it wears off before we have some like huge wave of folks who are getting reinfected and then going into the hospital, the hospital because they no longer have that infection? Or is there a way to predict that beforehand and to, to evade like with the enormous um, burden that would put on the, both the, the healthcare um, infrastructure and on obviously the people who are going to get sick and suffer. And that's, I think that's the real unknown here that I hope scientists are getting to the bottom of. Yeah, and, and it should, if there's ever 
we go through this again, God forbidding, <laughs> hopefully not, um, there should be a little bit more humility from mm -hmm. the medical establishment uh, to begin with um, on all fronts, right? There was, there was, well, we don't know about this, but then confident assertions, I mean, there was confident assertions about how uh, the vaccines would, uh, would, uh, would drastically reduce cases as well. They, they were, they look at the studies that are really effective against that and, and you know, that, that came apart. Yeah, it, and look, it is also worth noting that there were some bold claims that were made about the kinds of things that would prevent COVID that were non, that were not vaccine related, mm -hmm. some of which were not validated by science. Yep, some of which I had did, some yep, validation that I was minor that. and not really yep. substantial. Yep. So there have been mistakes made across kind of the political Absolutely. spectrum. Absolutely, there's a lot of wishful thinking yeah. about exactly. And I I'm, not a, I'm not equating what some online oh. person says about what treatment might be yeah. good versus what the CDC told us and misled right. us for a long time at all. But, you know, there is like a kind of a fog of war confusion, some of which is in good faith. And I hope that we're able to figure out a way, mm -hmm. figure out a way to regain trust and to not just be pointing fingers because conflicts like, I mean, um, tragedies mm -hmm. like this, emergencies like this are not going to go away and even COVID isn't going to go yeah. away. People who credibly ran with all of that stuff could have used uh, the application of, a, of an extra dose of skepticism, the skepticism yeah. they applied to the mainstream, the vaccines, et cetera. They could use a, some, a dose of skepticism in that direction. And people who put utter blind faith in what the medical establishment recommended, at, but you know, confidently asserted that all the other stuff was uh, that's obvious fraud, should apply some skepticism the other way. We'd all benefit from a little bit of a. Are you, are you intentionally framing it as a dose because you're in this yes. pharmaceutical mindset? Yes, <laughs> yeah, a, yes. a double injection this is my, of some skepticism. Yes, just like how I said. <laughs> I said uh, uh, that Buttigieg's career has been derailed. We were talking about very, the very nice. We're using literary references. Well, love the word play, Robbie, today. <laughs> More rising right after this. President Biden made a surprise visit to Kyiv just days before the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Biden embarked on the historic trip overnight and arrived at the presidential palace, where he was greeted by President Zelensky and his wife. Biden doubled down on the U.S.'s ongoing commitment to Ukraine. Here he is speaking from Kyiv. Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. Biden is feeling pressure from all sides in favor of supporting Ukraine. U.S. lawmakers are pushing the Biden administration to supply the war-torn nation with F-16 fighter jets. Biden declined to do so last month, opting to equip Kiev with 31 Abrams battle tanks instead. Look, I, I find that I find it disturbing what he says there in his remarks. That's exactly what we're concerned about. He says, as long as it takes. That has been the State Department's line. That's something they've repeated. He says it's priceless, so we'd be willing to spend any amount of money, any amount of money and an infinite amount of time to support Ukraine, not just necessarily for the defense, but for the de to the detriment of the Putin regime with the ultimate goal. I mean, we know, reading between the lines, that's what the ultimate State Department goal is. They want pain for Putin. And they're willing to pay any amount of money, and they're willing to take as long with this as they can, even if there's nothing left of Ukraine, you know, however many years from now, and we're still at this. Ukrainian. I mean, that really I is know. what's so gross about it, is the, you know, tacit indifference to the humanitarian implications of prolonging a conflict and not engaging in a way that's designed to bring the conflict to an end. When you're saying things like, 
as long as it takes, that doesn't exactly inspire confidence that your goal is to engage militarily in a way that's supposed to bring Russia to the table, yeah. in a way that's supposed to encourage some negotiations. And the way that from the beginning, there's never been any substantive conversation about what concessions are gonna be necessary to bring the conflict to an end. And in fact, any concession on the part of Ukraine being characterized as you know, bending the knee to Putin or you know, being a supporter of Putin or a Putin puppet, um, it, it is frustrating, it's demoralizing, and it is very interesting to see that Biden is able to continue with this narrative, despite there being a substantial amount of pushback uh, here at home, including uh, this past weekend, there was this anti-war rally where, where protesters from the right and the left marched in Washington just yesterday in the rage against the war machine rally, which opposed the war in Ukraine. Senator Rand Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, and Jimmy Dore were among the protesters who rallied at the Lincoln Memorial, calling for a peace deal and an end to arming Ukraine. Yeah, a lot of um, uh, guests we've featured, perspectives that um, have been at home here at Rising. Uh, former host Kim Iverson was uh, was there speaking as well. Uh, yeah, look, it's a, it's a very important call. And it was—so uh, it was organized, actually, by the Libertarian Party, Angela McArdle. We've had, we've had her on a, mm -hmm. as a guest as well. But, you know, with the stated explicit goal, we're here against war, which necessarily involves people on different sides of other political issues coming together. So there were, you know, there were some Lyndon LaRoche people there. There were lefty, probably explicit commie, communist people there. Mm -hmm. There were people with Russian flags. And, and do I agree with the variety of views those people hold on many other issues? No. But... You can't have you can't have a very successful anti-war rally unless you include voices who would not agree on other issues. I mean, this is like textbook political coalition building. So, because I agree with the cause, I, we, you know, you want to have, be as inclusive as you possibly can to to show that there is real opposition to this. And and I, I think there is among the American people. I think if you go to the American people and say President Biden said our commitment to this is is as long as it takes, whatever it takes. Do you agree with that? I don't think I don't think. I think many Americans would say they would have some pause about that. They'd ask, you know, well, is he going to visit East Palestine? Yeah. I mean, look, there was some checkered responses to this uh, event happening on the left. Obviously, there are a lot of leftists who were uh, participants and panelists and some of the biggest cheerleaders uh, of this. At the same time, there was a debate within the community as to whether or not there are some people who you shouldn't um, coalition build with. And people like Chris Hedges took the opposite approach. He was a speaker at the event, um, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalist Chris Hedges. And he says that it is important to be clear about those things that you don't agree with people with. So there's no confusion about the idea of, that you might be endorsing some other beliefs um, that are articulated by people at the conference. But at the end of the day, the blob in this case or whatever other powerful force that you're aligning against or trying to coalition build to defeat is always going to win if you succumb to the idea that there has to be a perfect harmony of interests for you to rally around a shared cause. I've talked to you a little bit about the Libertarian Party, of which I'm a member, um, had, a, had a, a new group kind of take over the party and, it, and is pushing it in a little bit of a different direction, and that's caused some discomfort among people who used to be. If there's a big kind of civil war, in the, a big civil war in the Libertarian <laughs> Party, because they're so massive and powerful and influential. Um, I've had many criticisms of the kind of team that took over, but this isn't really one of them. I, I'm, and, and now they're being criticized by some of the people who used to be affiliated with the LP, mm -hmm. saying it was wrong of them to have this uh, rally and invite so many 
perspective, people who are outside libertarianism or who have beliefs. Oh, interesting. You guys are so having we're the getting same that debate. Too. We're absolutely getting that. And again, I, I am not. I do not shy away from critiquing the party when I disagree with some of the things it's doing. But uh, on this issue, I think if you're going to have an anti-war rally, you should invite people who are anti-war, even if we disagree with them otherwise. Yeah, that, that kind of is inspiring to me, actually. It makes me oh, kind yeah. of feel like we go through if the same thing. Mad, if everyone's <laughs> mad, it sounds like they're on the right track. Yeah. And by the way, we will be having um, some people who were at the rally. Mm -hmm. uh, Savvy Sabs will be joining us tomorrow to discuss. Yeah, and we have uh, some footage of Tara Reid uh, talking on Tucker Carlson about uh, the rally, which took place over the weekend, and getting some promo for it. Let's watch. Tara Reid will be there. She's the author of Left Out, When the Truth Doesn't Fit In. We've interviewed her before on other topics, but she'll be at this event tomorrow. Tara, thanks so much for coming on. Why are you, why are you speaking at this, and what is this? First of all, thank you for um, having me. Oh. And I feel really strongly about speaking out against war. And, you know, you have... Um, so many political parties coalescing from the right and the left and the libertarians leading the charge um, to this event. And it's really amazing. So you have the People's Party, the libertarians. You have um, all different uh, speakers like Jimmy Dore, Ron Paul, Kim Iverson, um, Tulsi Gabbard, with very different political views coming together for one message, no more endless war. We've spent almost $100 billion of weapons and aid going to Ukraine and the suffering that we have in our own country is being ignored. And you've been covering yes. quite well where other networks haven't. The East Palestine in um, Ohio, the ecological disaster, our infrastructure's falling apart. America's becoming a failed state with all these endless wars. We've basically pivoted from Afghanistan to Ukraine. And this war started, yes, 24th, some people say, but actually it started in 2014 with Mandan when the Western coup was put in place in Kiev, and that was revealed by Julian Assange, who is, um, you know. Yeah, it was great, uh, great to see, again, you know, try, drawing publicity attention to this very important cause in, in different, uh, different media environments um, so that everyone, again, we might disagree on a lot of other things, even some things related to this conflict, but it's important to have a group of people putting pressure on the administration to not have a whatever it takes, as much money as it takes commitment, which, which I, I don't think, and I don't think you think, is ultimately in the best interest of the Ukrainian people either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so tune in tomorrow. We will have more on this with Sabrina Silvati. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen to While on the Go, we are, of course, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good one. Bye-bye.